This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone, on this miserable old mozzy old day. Uh, I feel a little bit out of sorts here today because I'm separated from Claudette Barnes. She's <laughs> all the way over there. I'm in a different booth today, Claudette. It does feel odd because now my back is to you, and that makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> no, I, I like I like to be able to see you to communicate. As do I. It's so much easier. But yeah. I'll just have to imagine your smiling face now. As we go through the show. Um, Well, what we're going to talk about today are a number of things. The Canadian Medical Association, of course, has released a report on the increase in federal health transfers to the provinces. Grieg signs a new agreement with Quinlan Brothers. And we're going to remember the SS Caribou. Well, to start things off, the Canadian Medical Association has done some analysis on the health accord, which it says echoes previous reports highlighting the fact that funding alone cannot rebuild Canada's drain health systems. Canadian Medical Association President Dr. Alika LaFontaine joins me now. So the uh, Canadian Medical Association has put out this survey, buying time or buying change. And it's, uh, I guess, looking at and crunching the numbers on this uh, recent increase in medical health transfers from the federal government to the provinces. Um, Will that increase make a difference in the delivery of health care in Canada? So we do know from previous investments by the federal government that when priorities are stated, provinces and territories start to move towards those investments. So we, we knew in the last health accord in 2017 that uh, the focus of the budget ended up being where provinces and territories ended up spending. Now, whether or not that ends up having the trickle-down change that improves patient access, because we know that that's the number one priority of, of patients across the country and really the main way that people are suffering across the country and whether or not that fixes working environments for providers across the country, that really depends on whether or not we sit around the table and get get to the work. You know, if you look historically at, you know, the cycles of change that have happened across the country and the last time that we had, you know, a a, a major health human resource crisis uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, there was the Romano Report, which led to a bunch of recommendations and the 2007 First Minister's Accord on Healthcare Renewal. You know, things actually started to get better for a while. And I think the reason why we didn't fix our problems is we got up from the table too early. So that that really is what we'll be looking for moving forward, whether or not we're going to sit down and actually get to the end of solving these problems or whether we're going to solve them partially and then run into the cycle again years later. Right, because some of the the highlights appear to be, uh, you know, reducing wait times and all of those kinds of things. But as you indicated, and we've seen that here in Newfoundland and Labrador, there is a significant human resources crunch in healthcare. Uh, so how does that get addressed? So if you look at the structure of the budget, it, it identifies specific priorities for, for provinces and territories to work in. So one of the major areas is family health teams. You know, and then others, including things like backlogs and working conditions for healthcare providers, mental health addictions, modernizing the healthcare system. Um, so these types of focuses will make an impact if we sit around our tables and we we work through the issues that that need to be confronted. The other thing that that's different about this funding is that for the first time since the accords began in 2000, 
we are seeing kind of these front-end conditions that are required uh, before people can even sign on to these agreements. So with the, the Canada Healthcare Transfer, there's a requirement for people to sign on to depersonalized data sharing. You know, that's a big part of the budget is making sure that we're making decisions around data that's both timely and accurate. And then the second part is making sure that we improve mobility of healthcare providers, which I think is something that, that patients in Atlantic Canada are going to appreciate before the rest of the country with the regional license that's going to open on, on May the 1st. And so the, the budget and the health transfer discussions have led to these things. And I, I think we, we have the opportunity to do something different in healthcare and, and potentially really impact the way that patients access care. The CMA uh, questions whether or not brave choices will be made. What does that mean specifically? You know, healthcare is inherently political, right? It's it's one of those problems that when it's an issue, it can't be ignored. But unless it's in front of voters and Canadians, people tend not to think about. And so I, I think by that statement, we're we're really just stating the obvious. If we don't remain focused on these problems, if we allow the crises to normalize and for us to get used to them, or only pay attention when it affects us, uh, we won't be able to solve these problems. And these problems are solvable, but it requires us to stay at the same table and to work out these issues until they're solved. What about accountability? How do we know that the money that we're receiving is being spent in meaningful ways? Yeah, and so that's a great question and one thing that we've really struggled with in past health accords. You know, we've often put very large sums of money that are difficult for the average Canadian to wrap their head around uh, into these systems. And then uh, we didn't have a clear idea of how that actually changed care outside of it feeling like it was better. Now, that will be different this time around, I believe, with the agreements on depersonalized data sharing and the requirement for jurisdictions to create benchmarks that they have to report on. So we, we know in the 2007 First Minister's Accord on Healthcare Renewal and the wait time guarantees that came along with a lot of that work, that when things were being reported and when they were being watched, things actually did get better. You know, wait times did improve. It was really when we stopped paying attention to those things and we stopped sharing that data that, that things started to drift. And so I, I think this time around, we will have the same sort of result. We just need to make sure that we continue to measure, we continue to report, and we continue to pay attention to what's going on. Data sharing, of course, is important, as you've indicated, and it, it helps to get a real sense of what's happening and what's being done. But, of course, numbers, uh, the patients are more than just numbers. They're individuals, and and their circumstances are unique. And, uh, of course, we've got a health accord here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and one of the primary focuses is the, are the social determinants of health. How do those get addressed? You know, I, I think the healthcare system and the social determinants are linked, but addressing the social determinants requires us to think about health as kind of this long arc across people's experiences versus just when they access care at a hospital or at a clinic. And I, I think if we start to shift towards team-based care, you know, this idea that it's not just about seeing your doctor or just seeing a nurse practitioner, but it's about everyone working together and including team members that we traditionally haven't had included in the healthcare team, persons like social workers and physiotherapists and you know folks who work within mental health, uh, we have the opportunity to start to understand people's longitudinal arc through the challenges that they go through versus just when they present to a healthcare facility for care. And I, I think in that is really the, the power of the focus on, on family health teams. And 
if we're able to have providers work with each other to solve patient problems instead of asking patients to bear that burden of finding the right door to go through instead of going through any door and having us figure out how to help them navigate through the system, I, I think we will start to solve those social determinants in ways that we haven't been able to before. And, of course, the question of recruitment and retention, and we've got all of these provinces now facing similar kinds of problems. Um, how do we uh, recruit and retain physicians and other health care professionals without this push and pull of competing with each other um, and, and dealing with the, the realities of urban versus rural versus remote areas? You know, I, I've worked in a rural area for 12 years now. Uh, I originally planned to go to this rural area in Grand Prairie here in northern Alberta um, just for two years, but I fell in love with the community. My family fell in love with the community. We laid down connections and uh, obviously have stayed here a lot more, uh, a lot longer than we planned to. I, I think recruitment and retention isn't as complicated as we sometimes make it out to be. You know, what's the reason why people go and stay where they work? It's because it's a good working environment. It's because the people that they care about and are an important part of their life enjoy the place that they live and that they work. And that really is our challenge in public health care right now, is we have to create better working environments so people want to stay. And we have to make sure that the the folks who would would look at places where they could work are, are increasingly mobile. And so, you know, all of these threads kind of weave together, pan-Canadian licensure, you know, making sure to focus on improving working environments, shifting towards things like team-based care, you know, collecting data, making sure we're making decisions around that so we impact patients the most, getting focused on access. Um, these things together will be the solution to recruitment and retention. And the truth is there are many places where you live and where I live that are amazing places to live, but people just don't look at those places because it's it's tough for them to move around and, you know, it's tough for them to work uh, in environments that that uh, you know are, are are increasingly less resourced, et cetera. So these investments will help to fix those issues. You know, and hopefully, as more and more people set eyes on places they they otherwise wouldn't have thought of because it's easier to be mobile, um, we'll have more folks end up setting down roots and you know making sure that they they stay in areas that that desperately need them. You know, I, I know that providers will migrate to locations that make them feel valued and where they solve patient problems. You know, the, the reason we got into medicine was so we can help people. And if we have the opportunity to do that, I, I think it leads to a very satisfying professional life. And, you know, that that's good for patients and it's good for providers in those communities. You've put this report out now. I'm assuming you'll be watching how this develops very closely. Uh, will you be following up? You know, our plan at the Canadian Medical Association is to keep this discussion going. Um, I think there's other issues that we need to work through, too, now that we have funding in place and we kind of have the stakeholders around around the table. You know, we're uh, opening up additional conversations into issues around Indigenous health, including things like anti-racism leading into June. Uh, we will be opening a public-private discussion on health care starting in the late summer. You know, and all of these are intended to make sure that we unpack those issues that patients are talking about. You know, the, the great thing about all being around the table is that we're not talking past each other anymore. And so let's get our issues out there. Let's make sure that we're focused on patient access and improving healthy working environments. And, you know, months and years from now, I, I think people will feel the trickle-down change that's going to result. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for having me. And Dr. LaFontaine is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Coming up, the town of Carbonier carries on with its revitalization plan for the town's downtown area. This is News Talk. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. The RNC has just issued a missing persons report for 25-year-old Destiny Hart of St. John's. She was last seen on April the 12th in the area of Waterford Bridge Road. She's described as being about 5 feet 6 inches tall, about 220 pounds with brown eyes and long brown hair. Um, There's no description on what she was wearing at that time. Uh, Anyone with information on the whereabouts of Destiny Hart is asked to contact the RNC or Crime Stoppers 729-8000 or 1-800-222-8477. 25-year-old Destiny Hart of St. John's last seen uh, April 12th in the area of Waterford Bridge Road. And we'll be uh, putting a little story up on uh, online about that momentarily. Well, the town of Carbonier has started work on the second phase of its downtown revitalization plan. If you've been to Carbonier lately, you will notice how Water Street has changed and become the more vibrant focal point of the town after years of decline. Carbonier Mayor Frank Butt is on the line. Well, hello, Frank Butt. Hello, Linda. How are you doing? Great. So um, the town of Carbonier has been working on this for some time now. The revitalization of the Water Street business uh, downtown area of Carbonier, which was bustling for years and years and years, known as the hub of the bay, and uh, went through a little bit of a downturn in the 80s and so on. But uh, where are we now with that project? Well, right now, Linda, we're, we just started phase two of uh, the down, Carpenter Downtown Revitalization. So that's, uh, I guess we started last Monday, I think it was. But yeah, Monday passed. So uh, that's where we are right now. So it's a three-phase pro- program, and uh, we have phase one done, and uh, which was uh, very pleasing to the eye, and people were very happy with it. So now phase two has started, and uh, so here we are. We're going to uh, get this part finished, and then we'll uh, move on to phase three. So you're walking that um, that fine line, I guess, between um, maintaining a certain, uh, I guess, a historic charm with modern and exciting businesses. Absolutely, and I mean, like with every, uh, uh, I guess, renovations or any any uh, projects that you start construction in, there's always going to be, you know. Uh, Trying to balance out, keep my, keeping a bit of the history there, but also adding some uh, some uh, present day uh, decor, and that's what's happening right now. So I mean, and there will be disruptions. I mean, uh, with any uh, replacing of any water store uh, piping, there's always dig ups. But we're going to accommodate all our businesses in the downtown area, and, and we're going to work around it. We we did, we learned from phase one uh, what the residents needed to know, and not just residents but visitors to how to navigate the downtown area while the construction is. Uh, being taken place. So what will phase two involve? Well, it's pretty much a, a mirror project of uh, phase one. It's uh, You're going to have your uh, your walkways will be done up in the, those uh, paving stones as well. Uh, light shades, the lamps that are there in phase one will continue on into phase two, uh, which I would say looks very nice in the, in the nighttime with the, when they're all lit up, especially uh, during the, the holiday season, because we try to uh, accommodate it to match what season it is. So uh, we just took down our own uh, Christmas uh, 
snowflakes because we're into the spring, but we have our rope lighting up there, and we'll uh, put up our uh, flags this, this uh, I guess, the end of this month, and uh, we'll just continue on. So whatever we did, we'll have some, you know, it, it involves the War Memorial as well, so that's a different uh, different project as well, but uh, it, it's going to be good. Uh, we'll incorporate everything that's in Phase 1 into Phase 2. So how are you accommodating uh, businesses in, in the area while this work is underway? Well, we had uh, we had consultations with the businesses in the area as well as uh, residents, and you know, just to let them know what's happening, how how it's going to be. Uh, we we asked everyone to sign up for our mailing list so that we can keep up to date on uh, on disruptions and that. Uh, we do use our social media, but but you know, not everyone uh, is on social media, so we, we've asked the residents as well as the business corporate citizens to uh, provide us with uh, an email address. So when something you know special happens or something out of the ordinary takes place in any part of town, not just the downtown, we'll uh, send them an email and then they'll be prepared for it. And they can certainly you know check with our website as well. And what about the structures that were heavily damaged uh, during that fire last year? Uh, where does that stand now? Well, right now uh, there, there is they, they are being removed, and uh, it, it's going to be you know it's going to be a process because I don't think you can get in there with the excavators because they're so close to the power lines, and so close to the other building. So I believe they're going to hand, hand bomb it off. So, uh, uh, like I said, they're at it now for the past couple of weeks. It's going to take a bit of time, but uh, they're going to get there and it's going to going to get done. And what are, what are you hoping will happen uh, once they're down? Well, we certainly don't want to have a, a, a vacant lot there, so uh, there is provisions from the town to allow uh, uh, construction of buildings that doesn't necessarily fit the regular regulations for the town because it's in the heritage area. So, you know, your setbacks and your, your, your yardage and that from each side is, is different, so we'll just uh, take each one on their own and, and uh, evaluate it, and uh, I'm sure that uh, there'll be no trouble to put a building back there. So Carboneer, even though it's going through this uh, phase two uh, revitalization, is open for business. That's the message you want to send. Is that correct? That's correct, Linda. I mean, we we, po- we post our signs, and not just for the downtown area. I mean, uh, all of Carboneer is open for business. We have a big development on the west side there that's, that's continuously growing. And uh, But we just want to let people know that, yes, we are open for business. You might have to do a little bit of walking to get to uh, a certain uh, business that you want to in the construction zone. But, you know, a bit of walking is good for you. So it's a a win-win situation for everyone. Frank Bott, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem. I just also want to say that, that, you know, the downtown doesn't just affect only the downtown area. I mean, it's good for uh, all of Carabineer, and it's good for the area, the CBN area. And uh, when people come in to visit downtown Carabineer, they may stop into the other communities along the way and and, uh, support those people as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. You have a good day. That's Carboneer Mayor Frank Butt about work ongoing uh, to help revitalize the downtown area of that uh, particular community. Well, British Columbia's privacy commissioner says Canadian tire stores that used facial recognition technology didn't adequately notify their customers and didn't get consent to collect the personal information. Michael McAvoy's report says even if the four stores he investigated had obtained permission, they were still required to show a reasonable purpose 
purpose for collecting the information which the investigation found they did not do. Twelve Canadian tire stores in British Columbia were using the technology for about three years, saying it was needed for theft and staff safety. But the systems were removed and the information destroyed when the commissioner notified the chain that four stores were under investigation. McAvoy says highly sensitive biometric information was captured by the systems between 2018 and 2021, and the stores would have had to make a compelling case to show it was reasonable to collect the precise mathematical rendering of each person's face. He says the stores contravened the Personal Information Protection Act, and he has made recommendations to government and the stores. McAvoy says the stores need to develop and maintain a robust privacy management plan, while the B.C. government should change the laws that regulate the sale of biometric technology and create additional obligations for organizations that use it. And this comes amid uh, growing concerns about the amount of information that are collected about each and every one of us, uh, either by companies or uh, law enforcement officials or whatever the case may be, and uh, what the exact purpose of that would be. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a compelling um, uh, argument and a compelling uh, conversation that's being had now, not to... Not to mention uh, AI, which uh, we had a conversation about that in the newsroom this morning, uh, about some of the uh, frightening implications there. Uh, if you have any thoughts, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. We're up to news time now. I'm looking over to see. I can actually see him now. Hi, Noah. Uh, looking over to see if Noah Shepard is in the booth. He is. So we'll go to news time now when we come back. We're going to hear from uh, Greek Seafoods. They recently signed a processing agreement with Quinlan Brothers. This is News Talk. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And thanks a lot, Noah. And Claudette, I can see you again. Hello. Yes, hello. <laughs> Makes a difference. A little disorienting, isn't it? It is, I gotta to be say. Talking into the void, <laughs> so know. to speak. Especially your room there. It's just so compact. And in that corner. In the corner, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're face-to-face again. That's uh, so refreshing to me again. Thank you very much for that. Well, Greek Seafood and Quinlan Brothers have reached an agreement to process the first farmed salmon harvested from the new Greek facility in Marystown this fall. The fish will be harvested in October and processed at Quinlan's Bay Divert plant. Well, Greg Seafood's, uh, Greek Seafood's Director of Communications, Perry Power, joins me now. Well, hello, Perry Power. Hello, Linda. Nice to speak to you again. It's been uh, busy days in Marystown these days, I understand. Well, we're, we're, our project is uh, ramping up and moving along according to plan. We're very, very pleased with, uh, with the performance of our, our beautiful fish out in uh, the marine sites. And, uh, and we're, uh, we're certainly plugging along in our land-based uh, aspect in Marystown. So, yes, uh, it's, it's exciting times for our project. So tell us a little bit about uh, what's been happening there lately. So of of course now we're into normal production. We're um, we've um, our our fish that went out into the water last year, uh, starting in May, have performed very well. Uh, we've uh, we've got, as we say in the business, very low mortality. Anybody who's into any kind of farming, terrestrial or or on the sea, will know that living things do die. 
And uh, fortunately for us, it's been really low. The fish have grown very well, and uh, we're really excited at the prospect of uh, of harvesting them uh, very soon. And of course, as uh, as we're wanting to do, we've brought in uh, more eggs to to hatch, and we're growing the the, the harvest for next year. So. Um, in, in uh, that's a very big simplification, but uh, things are going well. The the uh, land base is operating as we hoped, and we're very proud of our staff out in the, in the sea, all our our local people and those people who've come to join and contribute from elsewhere in the world, and uh, and uh, we're building up that workforce as well. And I understand you've just uh, reached an agreement with Quinlan Brothers. What's that all about? It's very exciting. So we we. Uh, we uh, had a look around with the capacity uh, of, uh, you know, first of all, I'm very pleased with all the capacity as a Newfoundlander in harvesting in uh, in Newfoundland. But uh, we uh, we reached a, an agreement with Quinlan Brothers based in Beta Verde because they uh, we uh, it's a really solid business case for us. We're going to process what's called head-on gutted. Uh, in uh, in their facility in Bay Verde, they had a section uh, that was uh, was left undeveloped, and uh, they're going to put in a modern processing um, line for us, and with their excellent staff, and we'll start processing our salmon there in October. So that will be the uh, the first fish, I guess, that will reach harvesting age. And uh, yes, that'll be a very happy day. I can assure you for uh, for all of us. And um, you know, there's a there's a big demand for for these now worldwide. So uh, we're we're exciting to excited to be in full production now, and uh, and to uh, to pursue that cycle each and every year now. So, what kind of a capacity do you have? Um, how many fish are we talking about? So. We we put out uh, um, a large number of fish, as as the province has reported, about two million. Um, this is the beginning, you know, the very first. We'll proceed very carefully over the next few years with great caution. We'll uh, we'll take a very deliberate approach and careful approach at developing Placentia Bay and its capacity. Uh, but uh, this year will be, uh, you know, we'll know for sure. It's going to be about 5,000 metric tons uh, head-on gutted when uh, when it's it's produced. So those folks in the industry will know what that means. Uh, that's a very nice first production. We're we're really pleased with that, uh, and I'm looking for some wood to knock on. Mother Nature has been very kind to us, so uh, we we can't wait to to uh, have that first day. That's going to be a big moment for our company. So does that mean then that uh, Grieg in Marystown will remain a a, a development type of um, uh, operation as opposed to processing? Or or will the processing all take place at Quinlan's? How is that going to work? So for right now, yes, as we move forward, we're looking forward forward to developing the capacity uh, with with Robin Quinlan and his team. Um, we we uh, were really we were really excited when we saw their their facility and their approach overall to to processing. Um, for us, we're in the business of growing fish. 
uh, we we leave processing to the processors. <clears throat> and uh, at this point, uh, we're we're really excited to announce this today. How many people working at Grieg right now? So right now we have ninety six, and uh, that's directly employed. Um, <clears throat> of course, we we are you know we're. We're going to grow with uh, with our requirements, certainly in the marine site, but um, we also have partnering companies. There's a there's a broad scale effect for this, Linda, as as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, we have a lot of suppliers who are de- dependent on us, and we have a number of companies that deliver service to us, and uh, that employs a, a number as w- of people as well. So it's a broad reach right across the island, including right now, for example, Bay Verde. We, we, Bay Verde. we were always, uh, always saying that uh, we, we could, uh, you know, we're, we're going to scale up to soon to 150 metric tons. That's, that, or, I'm sorry, to 150 employees. Uh, um, the, excuse me, they're always talking about production again, which is not the case, but we're going to soon, soon scale up to 150 employees. That'll take a, a few years, a couple of years to get to that point. But uh, these people will be highly trained. We're, we're taking people, so to speak, you know, local people in Newfoundland, and we're going to start them up and, uh, and provide them with the opportunity to become professionals in this field. Uh, we're working with institutions like the Marine Institute, who have been fantastic at, at providing high-end training, and uh, we'll look at other options as well to augment that, including in-house training. Um, and uh, we'll have a lot of people with credentials who can, uh, who can contribute to this industry for generations to come. And I know concerns have been raised in the past, and we've seen a number of incidents in recent years uh, related to uh, fish farming, in especially in the ocean, and, and some of the concerns that have been raised about that from an emar- environmental standpoint. What kind of measures has Greg taken to address some of those uh, very serious concerns? Oh, thank you for asking that, because in in short, a great deal. That's a big focus for us. We've uh, we've invested heavily, uh, obviously, in our land-based, which keeps fish longer at land, as opposed to to and you know we put them out to sea for a lot less time, just one winter, as opposed to the conventional approach of having two winters at sea. This we also allow for a long fallow period, just like land when you're farming uh, pastures. Uh, you, we we leave our uh, sea sites dormant a lot longer, and uh, and that really has uh, has is we believe is going to result in a much healthier way. Of course, the fish themselves are a big aspect of it, in the sense that they're sterile, they're all female, which means um, in the very unlikely occurrence that you would have any kind of an escape, which we, is something we certainly uh, work very hard given the type of, of equipment that we have out there, uh, that they will not go towards the rivers. It's, it's just not in their genetic makeup to, to uh, go towards the rivers. They would very likely just stay around the area because that's where they're accustomed to being feeded. But uh, our hope is that will never happen. They cannot reproduce. They are, uh, they are sterile. Uh, normal fish, just in the process that the, the provider uses, they apply pressure, and that renders them sterile. 
you get sterile uh, animals in nature, and uh, we we just work with that natural capacity to ensure that uh, we produce a normal, healthy uh, seafood product for for the market, and the with the added assurance that it's not going to interfere with uh, with nature. And what about uh, pest control, sea lice, that kind of thing? Uh, there are concerns about uh, the use of chemicals and that. How do you control that? Our, our industry is moving forward. Um, of course, nothing is static. Uh, the industry is not what it was 20 years ago, for example. Equipment uh, is moving. We have barrier technology that ensures that uh, that uh, reduces, I guess, the effects of, of sea lice. There are more advancements coming. Stay tuned. Uh, we're we're uh, we're on top of a lot of uh, trends now. There is there are proposals, for example, for what we call subsea feeding, where we would move the fish down further in the cage. We're in very deep water in Placentia Bay. That ensures that. Um, that uh, you know, first of all, we we strive not to uh, not to uh, interfere with our our uh, colleagues who work in the wild fishery, but it also ensures that the uh, the environmental effects are are as I mentioned less with fallowing and all that sort of thing. But uh, if sea lice only exist in the upper the very upper column, approximately I believe it is uh, ten years, and uh, presently we have no sea lice. And we do not have any use of any uh, chemicals or medicine in uh, in in the water. So we strive to to maintain that, um, and uh, and we'll monitor it very closely. Perry Power, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, it's my pleasure, Linda. Anytime, and uh, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. And Perry Power is Greek Seafood's Director of Communications. Coming up, remembering the SS Caribou with the launch of a new online exhibit on the World War II tragedy. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back. Well, a new online museum exhibit on the sinking of the SS Caribou by a German U-boat in 1942 is being launched this Sunday at the Railway Heritage Museum in Channel Port of Basque. Joining me now is Neil Burgess of the Shipwreck Preservation Society. Hello, Neil Burgess. Hi, Linda. How are you doing? Great. It's been a little while since you and I chatted, but I understand, and this is something that you and I have spoken about uh, at length in the past, a, a new online museum ex- exhibit on World War II sinking of the SS Caribou, uh, finally getting underway. Tell us a little bit about this online exhibit. Well, we've, we we did a, a previous exhibit with the Bell Island Museum on the four ships that were sunk at Belle Island by German U-boats. And once we had that finished, um, the Shipwreck Preservation Society decided we wanted to work with the Railway Heritage Museum in Port of Basque to do another online exhibit. And this time we were going to focus on the SS Caribou Ferry that was sunk by a German U-boat in 1942. And this was uh, one of the deadliest attacks in Canadian and, and Newfoundland um, uh, World War II history? Yes, yeah, it was the the deadliest German attack on a ship uh, on the Canadian East Coast in the whole war. 137 people perished. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of uh, the crew died, 
and a bunch of civilians, including women and children, and um, dozens of servicemen and women who were traveling over to Newfoundland on the ferry. What can we expect from this online exhibit? What will people see and learn? Uh, we've we've spent three years gathering information and pictures and videos and uh, audio clips, um, actually some of them with the the actual survivors themselves. Um, so there's there's all kinds of information to see on here. And it tells the story of the Germans in the U-boat that attacked the caribou. It, it talks about the people that were on the caribou and ended up in the water uh, for hours before they were rescued. And it talks about the Navy escort ship, the uh, HMCS Grand Mare, which which was accompanying the caribou across Cabot Strait and then uh, went after the U-boat immediately after the attack for several hours and then finally returned to pick up the survivors from the water. And how was this information compiled? Well, we went to all different sources. Uh, We actually reached out to the the, uh, German U-boat museum and we went to archives in London, England, where they keep all the records uh, there from the war. And we went up to Ottawa to get the Navy records that are housed in Ottawa from the war. And, of course, we went to the archives in the rooms here in St. John's. Did anyone have an opportunity to speak with uh, Mr. Lake, one of the last survivors? No, we didn't talk to Headley Lake. I, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, no, we didn't. Um, but we did get a chance to talk to uh, a lot of family members of the crew and passengers uh, who had shared with us a bunch of stories uh, that, that have been passed down in their families. What makes this particular uh, incident so significant? Well, back in 1942, the Germans had sunk 20 different ships in the Gulf of St. Lawrence uh, in 1942 before they got the caribou. But the caribou was different because it, was, it wasn't a cargo ship, it was a passenger vessel, and there were so many civilians on board, including 11 children. And it, it really grabbed um, the public in both Newfoundland and Canada. And people were shocked and angered by this. And, of course, the politicians reacted as well. Um, they talked about the Germans being, you know, bestial attackers of women and children and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it it really brought the war home uh, because up until 1942, most Canadians and Newfoundlanders, the war was something that was happening over in Europe, not on our shores. And the singing of the caribou changed that. And the fact that so many civilians were affected by this. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done a map that's included in the uh, the exhibit that shows the hometowns of everybody who died aboard, all 30, 137 people that died. And it's it goes right, I mean, obviously most a lot of them are in Newfoundland, but there's... A, a big number in Nova Scotia as well. They go right across Canada to, to Victoria, and in the United States, they go all the way down to Florida. 
uh, with the American servicemen that were on board. So, I mean, it, it truly touched all corners of North America. Now, you're with the Shipwreck Preservation Society, and you and I have spoken about this before. Has has the wreck ever been pinpointed or, or located? No, not that we know of. Uh, we've been talking to um, the people at, in DFO that make the nautical charts, and they don't have a location for it. So we're not sure exactly where it is. We have a rough idea, and I've actually been talking to people about um, – going out and looking for it with sonar to see if we can try and locate it because it would be great we know it's very very deep it's 450 meters down probably so we'd have to use a, an rov a remotely operated vehicle to get down to see it uh, but it would be i think quite interesting to get a few pictures of of the wreck if it if it turns out to be possible of course, the town of Portobas marks the anniversary of the sinking each year, but the ceremony marking the 80th anniversary last year, of course, was postponed as the town was dealing with the fallout from Hurricane Fiona. Will, will that go ahead this year? Yes, what happens is every five years, there's a ceremony out there that's organized by the museum in Portobas and the Legion, the Royal Canadian Legion branch in, in Portobas. So they'll have an 85th celebration we were hoping to get to uh, launch this website on the 80th anniversary last october but like you said fiona kind of wrecked those plans so we've put it off till till now and uh i guess at, at the 85th anniversary um in uh 2027 then there'll be another big ceremony at the caribou memorial which is just outside the museum in port and Neil, how can people access this uh, online museum? I'm not going to read the, you know, go through the, the great long uh, uh, URL for the website. But if they Google "tragic sinking of SS Caribou," uh, the site will come up, and they'll be able to look at it. And it's there, available in both English and French. And we're having a launch event down at the Railway Heritage Museum in Channel Porta Basque this Sunday at 2 p.m. So if there's any family members, uh, especially who have stories um, of their loved ones who were either survivors or lost on the singing of the caribou, we'd love to hear some of those stories if they want to come out to Porta Basque and share them on Sunday. Tragic Sinking SS Caribou. I will have uh, links up on vocm.com in the next little while. Neil Burgess, I really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm really happy to share the story and try to make more people aware of our, our nautical history here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that online museum is being launched this Sunday at the Railway Heritage Museum in Channel, Portobasque. Well, Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne says Canada's electric vehicle battery contract with Volkswagen could be worth more than $13 billion over the next 10 years. Champagne disclosed the amount today during an interview with Bloomberg News after the German auto giant announced last month it would build its first overseas gigafactory in St. Thomas, Ontario. And of course, I had to look up, uh, Claude, at the gigafactory because that's the first time I've heard Me that too. term. Uh, but a gigafactory is a facility that produces batteries for electric vehicles 
on a large scale. And uh, as we know, the uh, a bunch of uh, German, um, what would you call, captains of industry came over here not too long ago uh, to sign all kinds of deals. No doubt this is part of it because Volkswagen was part of that group. They came to Newfoundland and Labrador as well for the Stephenville area. The contract will include an upfront capital investment of $700 million and up to $13 billion in production subsidies for every battery they make and sell. So that's uh, good news for St. Thomas, Ontario. It remains to be seen how our whole uh, hydrogen development will work out for us here in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, when uh, that gets up and running and starts uh, shipping out to uh, Germany. Um, well, that's it for us for today. Uh, it's a miserable day out there, folks. If you're driving, uh, keep your speeds down and you're probably going to encounter some problems with visibility. It looks like it uh, could be foggy in the higher elevations. And of course, there's a lot of water on the road. So uh, please be aware of that. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening, everyone.